Good evening, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. From Marcus Lopez, Corey Dubin, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On tonight's show, a one-hour exclusive special on surviving the system from survival mode to renewal. Exclusive sound from the World Indigenous Law Conference here on American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. You can hear when the moon shines. The lone blue elk in the black of the night You can hear, you can hear The whisper in the valley mm-hmm. And you know When come a cunny blows to the bar who drum It's the warriors who are marching mm-hmm. Down the mountain mm-hmm. Because history ain't no mystery This past October 19th through October 22nd of 2016, the Seventh Generation Fund hosted the World Indigenous Law Conference on Rights, Responsibilities, and Resilience, an international discourse on Indigenous peoples, jurisprudence, and the traditional territories of the Tongva and Hachiman nations. The World Indigenous Law Conference is held every two years in different countries throughout Mother Earth and is comprised of longtime Indigenous activists, scholars, academics, and supporters. This year's keynote speaker beginning the World Indigenous Law Conference is from the Chumash and Oatham Nations. She is a longtime Indigenous activist, cultural revitalist, and community organizer and professor at the California State University of Long Beach at Puvungna. This is Deborah Sanchez from the Chumash and Oatham Nations on surviving the system from survival mode to renewal. I'm glad that we started off with um, that blessing and the, and the singers and a little bit of fun and laughter. Uh, because um, today, um, some of the things I'm going to share with you, they're going to be hard. You know, hard, hard to think about, hard to remember. But uh, I just want to introduce, you, dis- introduce myself in my language. Haku, haku, kichi chanti, kikikikich. Shakshwala Helkoko Kakti Smuich, Wela Sanchi Kakti English, Kapanish Humolok, He Nakalamu, He Lamu, He Swahil, Ke Kapanish, He Akimil Tohono Otam, E Ramuri, Sutikim, Kikanun, Hil Kuku, Heliti Shub Tangwak, He Ahashman, Kupi, Kinonowan, He Hel Kuku, He Snosnowan, Hub. Standing Rock, Si Ich Kushash, Hello, Keshub, Paka, Kiahash. Welcome, friends and relatives. My name in Smuich is She Loves the People. My name in English is Deborah Sanchez. My people are from Swahil on the island of Limu. And my people are also the Akimel and Tohono Otans and the Raramuris of what is now called Northern Mexico. Um, I want to first thank the people of the land, the Tongva and Hashiman people. And I also want to say that we stand with the people of Standing Rock and that they are the protectors of the land and the water and the spirit of 
of all of us is, are one. It's something to be here with so many amazing people, lawyers and scholars, activists, defenders, and protectors of the mother, people who have accomplished so much in uh, the world and for indigenous people. A warm greetings to all of our guests from near and far. All of you who helped make the world a better place. We want to make good in the world. Today I'm going to talk to you about our survival, about conflicting worldviews and genocidal policies and laws that have affected so many. But I also want to talk to you about renewal of our traditions, of our people and our world. In 2010, Seventh Generation Fund held a gathering for indigenous people in Northern California. The Mayan guests talked about the Mayan calendar and the prophecy. At that time, many people were talking about the Mayan calendar as being equivalent to the end of the world. And um, <laughs> which many had misinterpreted to be December of 2012. A movie was even made showing huge tsunamis, fires, and the near eradication of the human race. But our Mayan guests thought it was quite strange how the American public had interpreted the ending of the Mayan calendar to meaning the ending of the world. And uh, the traditional Mayan people told us that the Mayan calendar, the end of the Mayan calendar, wasn't the end of the world, but it was going to be the end of the world as we knew it. You see, the galaxy had turned. The end of the calendar marked the beginning of the galactic dawn. The paradigm was shifting. It takes 26,000 years for the galaxy to turn to make the full rotation. Yet the Mayan people knew this. From generation to generation, they passed this knowledge on. When NASA compared the Mayan calendar to the atomic clock, they found the calendar to be accurate to the hundredth of the decimal. This is indigenous knowledge. Our histories reveal that we have been keen observers of the natural world. Many of our perspectives as human beings are that we are simply part of the natural world, recognizing the life energy in everything around us, even when other cultures may see things that we see as inanimate. This perspective, this way of life was headed for a full-on collision course with the people who believe that nature was to be tamed, that man was the head of the food chain, and that all creation should come under man's dominion. Dr. Jack Forbes, in his book, Columbus and Other Cannibals, talks about the psychosis that was brought to this land from across the sea, a psychosis that it was described as relentless, insanely, genocidally, ecocidally, suicidally destructive. It is greed that consumes the earth, the elements, land and water and air, and consumes people too. These are not just bad choices, Dr. Forbes says, but rather a sickness. They are mentally ill and tragically from the sickness that they have, uh, Dr. Forbes says, is contagious. Our own people are not immune. The ones who have lost their way. The psychosis that Columbus brought to these shores, as revealed in his reports, he's, this is how he described the people he met when he went to the West Indies. 
They are generous with what they have to such a degree that no one would believe him that had seen it. If anything they have, if it be asked for, they never say no, but do rather invite the person to accept it and show as much lovingness as though they would give their hearts. All these loving people, they're the very ones that Columbus enslaved, taking them by force, sending them across the ocean to the kings and queens of Spain, saying that he could provide as many slaves as their highnesses might want. In his book, Jack Forbes provides example after example, describing ancient prayers, the wisdom of the elders from all over the indigenous world, the philosophies of indigenous people, seeing the world with a great appreciation for all that was seen and all that was unseen. And with grateful hearts when a life was taken, even for food or shelter, plant or animal, because everything has the right to live. And there was a gratitude when a life was taken. It was such a great responsibility when a life was taken, a dilemma even in necessity. And that responsibility, and through that responsibility came the practice of using every bit of what has been taken with gratitude and respect. You know, my grandmother was very poor, lived in the desert, and uh, when her father killed a mule deer, um, they were happy because they were gonna be able to eat some, some good food. And uh, when my grandfather uh, slit the, the throat of the deer, he had each of his children cup their hands and take the blood and ask them to drink that. Now, my grandmother was young at the time, and she didn't want to do it. But my grandfather told her, no, you must, because that's where you show your respect and your gratitude. The, um, this conference gonna, is going to include presentations on the doctrine of discovery, which will discuss the papal bulls of the Catholic Church in the 1400s, uh, which authorized the kings and queens of Europe to seize the land and subjugate the people, as long as no other Christian nation had done so. While Portugal had claimed West Africa, Spain was laying claim to the Americas, the papal bulls sanctioned the kings and queens of Western Europe to vanquish, subdue, and take the possession, possessions of the indigenous people. Those who accepted Christianity would be spared and have the privilege of turning over their land to the Pope. Those who resisted will be subjected to being enslaved, maimed, or killed. The belief used by the Western European nations to divest the indigenous people of their life, their land, and their way of living. The Huequermiento of 1513 was drafted by the Spanish to be read before they took the land of the people, even though the people couldn't understand what the heck they were saying. All right, so this is what it says, the translation. If you do not comply or maliciously delay obedience to my injunction, then with the help of God, I will enter your country by force, declare war on you with the utmost violence, subject you to the yoke of obedience in the church and the king, seize your wives and children and make slaves of them, and will sell or dispose of them according to his majesty's pleasure. I will seize everything you own 
and do everything within my power to bring misery to your rebellious subjects who refuse to acknowledge or submit to their lawful sovereign. I declare that all the resulting bloodshed and calamity shall be blamed on you and not his majesty, nor I, nor any of the gentlemen who serve under me. Wow, what chance do we have with that kind of brutality? The mindset continued all over the world. Civilization has brought death and destruction, heartache and despair. Each of us knows that colonization has wreaked havoc around the world. I've been to all four countries, the nation states that originally uh, opposed the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Of course, uh, the United States was the last country to accept the doctrine of, dis uh, the doctrine of, uh, not the doctrine of discovery, they said that, but the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in, wasn't, didn't happen until 2010. And all of these countries began as British colonies eradicating the indigenous population to much smaller numbers. Each country has a history of laws and policies that were meant to eliminate or assimilate. And uh, some of the estimated populations now, there are indigenous people in the United States, uh, 2%. Australia, 3%. Canada, 4.3%. New Zealand, the highest at 14%. John Trudell was an activist, well-known, the late John Trudell. He referred to the sickness also, calling it a virus. And he said, the great lie is that it is civilization. It is not civilized. It has been literally the most bloodthirsty, brutalizing system ever imposed upon this planet. That is not civilization. That is the great lie. The United States rose from 13 British colonies, gaining its independence from Great Brit Britain. Meanwhile, the Spanish were on the other side of the continent, enslaving, killing, and converting the indigenous. There have been numerous genocidal laws and policies, including forced removals of tribes from their traditional homelands, from places where they have lived since time immemorial, from land where the dead were buried, from land where our teachings had come from, where our spirits and bodies were nourished, land given to us by creator, places that were given to us where our original instructions happened and the sacred obligation to protect the land. The people were moved to lands far away, to other lands very different from lands that they were used to. The long walk of the Navajo in 1864, the US military forced 18 Navajos to walk 300 miles at gunpoint to an internment camp in Bosque Redondo, a desolate track on the Pecos River in eastern New Mexico, a place where 9,500 Navajos and 500 Mescalero Apaches were imprisoned living in holes dug in the earth with scarce rations and under armed guards, nearly 3,500 Navajos and Apaches had died. You're listening to Deborah Sanchez on Surviving the System from Survival Mode to Renewal. She was the first keynote speaker at this year's World Indigenous Law Conference held within the traditional territories of the Tongva and Hachiman Nations at UCI, University of California, Irvine. And now, back to Deborah Sanchez on Surviving the System from Survival Mode to Renewal. 
Nazi Germany took notice of this. Hitler's study boss, Guidando, designing concentration camps for the Jews. He was interested in the rapid decline of the native population while they were kept in the res on the reservations. Hitler claimed that he owed much to the study of the American and English uh, history. It should be noted that the term final solution was not coined by Nazi Germany. It was coined by Can in Canada by Indian Affairs Superintendent in 1910. His communication was in response to the concern about the high death rates in the coastal residential schools in Canada. This is what he wrote. It is readily acknowledged that Indian children have their natural resistance, uh, lose their natural resistance to illness by habitating closely in these schools and that they die at a much higher rate than in their villages. But this alone doesn't justify a change in the policy. What is geared towards the final solution of our Indian problem. Boarding schools traumatize Indian families in the United States and elsewhere. The practice of forcibly removing children left communities hollow without the next generation to carry on tradition, language, and culture. The physical, sexual, and mental abuse has disrupted our families and communities, and the residual effect is still with us. Even after the forcible removal of children had ended, they were still being removed from our homes by federal and state authorities, social workers, and child welfare agencies. In 1978, when the Indian Child Welfare Act was enacted, 25 to 30% of our children were being taken from our homes and our communities and placed in non-indigenous homes. Even today, right here in Southern California, with the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act, there's still not enough qualified homes to place our children. The United States Supreme Court, uh, in a case commonly called Baby Veronica, the court was determining whether or not the Indian Child Welfare Act applied. Through a tortured and twisted decision, the Supreme Court found that ICWA did not apply and baby Veronica was sent off to live with her non-native adoptive parents. Justice Sotomayor let the majority have it with a very powerful dissent highlighting the flaws in the majority's reasoning. But the reason I'm mentioning this to you is because of what the majority, uh, majority opinion uh, focused on. In their opinion, baby Veronica's blood quantum was at issue. Tribes define their memberships they set the criteria. That's part of our self-determination. There was no dispute that baby Veronica was eligible for tribal men membership in the Cherokee Nation, yet it was apparent that the majority didn't want the Indian Child Welfare Act to apply, and so they commented on her blood quantum. So after everything this country has put us through, after all the genocidal laws and practices and the lip service to self-determination, the Supreme Court is going to penalize the people because they found that baby Veronica was not Indian enough. That's not the reason they gave in the actual opinion, but I'm, that's my opinion. <laughs> the attempt at Christianization of Aboriginal people became more systematic in Canada with the Indian Act in 1876 which would bring new sanctions for those who did not convert to Christianity. The new laws prevented non-Christian Aboriginal people 
from testifying or having their cases heard in court. When the Indian Act was amended in 1884, traditional religious practices and social practices were banned. And in 1920, um, they were prevented from wearing traditional dress or performing traditional dances in an attempt to stop all non-Christian practices. The first government strategy of assimilation made possible by the Indian Act was a Canadian residential school system. Beginning in 1847 and lasting until 1996, the Canadian government in partnership with the Catholic Church ran 130 residential boarding schools across Canada for Aboriginal children who were forcibly taken from their homes. There is also evidence that the children were used in experiments. One of the testimonies given in 2010 was about an incident that occurred in 1944. And this is what the testimony says. I was just eight when they had shipped me down from the Anglican Church Residential School in Alert Bay to the Nanimo Indian Hospital, the one run by the United Church. They kept me isolated in a tiny room, kept me there for more than three years. I was like a lab rat feeding when they were feeding me these pills and giving me shots that made me sick. Two of my cousins made a big fuss, screaming and fighting and kicking back. So the nurses gave them shots, and both of them died right away. It was done to silence them. These boarding and residential schools have had generational effects. In 1988, some brave men had disclosed that they had been sexually abused while attending St. George's Residential School in Canada. <coughs> The same year, that same year after the abuse was disclosed, 22 men committed suicide. There are estimates that 94% of all residential school children in Canada were sexually abused. There are numerous tales of suffering from first contact. While whole nations have been wiped out, languages have been lost or went dormant, worldviews corrupted, ceremonies and traditions lost, children that were taken and placed in boarding schools, abused in every manner, even killed, and not shown love or nurture. Many families never knew what happened to their children because they never came home. It's estimated that 50% of all the children died or were missing after being sent to Canada's residential schools. This trauma is historic and generational. In Australia, the stolen generations were the children of Australian, Aboriginal, and Torres Strait Islander descent who were removed from their families by the Australian federal and state governments and um, along with the church missions. The removals often involved what those refer to as uh, half-caste children, which were children of mixed blood from about 1905 to 1969, and in some places, children were still being taken into the 1970s. These genocidal laws began with the Victorian uh, Aboriginal Protection Act, I like the way they coined that, Aboriginal Protection Act, 1869, allowing children, child removal from Aboriginal parents. In Western Australia, the Aborigines Act of 1905 removed the legal guardianship of the Aboriginal parents entirely, and it made all their children legal wards of the state. And authorities did not need parental permission 
to relocate mixed-race children. And in the act of 1911, designated, uh, they designated a chief protector of Aborigines in South Australia as a legal guardian of every Aboriginal child in South Australia, whether mixed blood or not. Appointed Aboriginal protectors in each state exercise wide-ranging guardianship over Aborigines up to the age of 16 or 21. Police agents, often called Aboriginal protection officers, were given the power to relocate children and transfer babies in, um, and take them from their mothers and families and place them into institutions. The exact number of children taken is not known, but there's a report called Bring Them Home, and they estimate 100,000 children were taken. Here's a first-hand account referring to events that occurred in 1935. I was at the post office with my mom and auntie and cousin. They put us in the police ute and said they were going to take us to Broome. They put the mums in the car as well. But when they had gone about 16 kilometers, they stopped and they threw the mums out. We jumped on our mother's back crying and trying not to be left behind. But the policeman pulled off and uh, pulled us off and threw us back in the car. They pushed the mothers away and drove off while our mothers were chasing the car, running and crying after us. We were screaming in the back of that car. When we got to Broome, they put us in a lockup. We were only 10 years old. We were there for two days before sending us on a boat to Perth. I was in Australia in 2014 for the World Indigenous Law Conference. I um, want to thank my Australian hosts, some of them are here today. <laughs> and um, we went to visit a township, an Aboriginal township there. The old boarding school was turned into a museum, and two of the older men were docents there. They told us about um, the museum and about their own experiences. Well, one man relayed a story when we first walked in. He pointed over there and he said, my bed was right there. I was six years old when they took me from my family. The first day, I was crying a lot. So the schoolmaster came in and said, uh, boy, why are you crying? And he said, I miss my nanny. And he's, as he was crying, he was beaten for that. And uh, once he said the story, he looked at the other docent and he just couldn't say another word. And even though we had just walked into the museum, um, everybody stopped talking and we lowered our head because we felt exactly what he was feeling, or not exactly, but we felt what he was feeling. And also, um, just the tragedy of what had happened. And there was also the love that we felt for each other. And that was Deborah Sanchez on Surviving the System from Survival Mode to Renewal. She was the first keynote speaker at this year's World Indigenous Law Conference on Rights, Responsibilities, and Resilience, an international discourse on Indigenous peoples' jurisprudence held within the traditional territories of the Tongva and Ahachiman Nations this past October 19th through October 22nd of 2016 at the Beckman Center of National Academies of Science and Engineering at University of California, Irvine. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. I'm not 
song My People, My Land by Pura and Jonathan Ward here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. In the next segment of tonight's show, we go back to our keynote speaker with Deborah Sanchez. She's from the Chumash and Autumn Nations. She's a longtime community activist, scholar, and cultural revitalist. She was the first keynote speaker at this year's World Indigenous Law Conference on the Rights, Responsibilities, and Resilience in International Discourse on Indigenous Peoples' Jurisprudence held in the traditional territories of the Hotchman and Tongva Nations at the Beckman Center of National Academies of Science and Engineering at University of California, Irvine. And now, back to Deborah Sanchez on Surviving the System, From Survival Mode to Renewal. The psychosis knows no boundaries. Women in the United States were sterilized coercively or without consent. I know this happened in all other parts of the world. 
1971, the Health Services Division issued a report to the Office of Economic Opportunity regarding Indian people, and this is what it says, quote, the Indian population will double in 22 years, creating extensive pressures on the limited resources of the reservation. Also saying that there was going to be, quote, a population explosion. However, our population at the time was only 3% of the US population. It wasn't that population that was at issue. It was the money the United States government was spending to keep their treaty obligations. The United States was constantly trying to get out of the Indian business in one way or another. And it had promised to provide health care, food, land to live on, and the necessities of life. And this was promised in exchange for all of the compromises that Indian people were forced to endure. In a report commissioned by the US government, Family Planning and the American Indian, it highlighted the poverty factor, saying that proportionally Indians are more, more quote, they, have ex they suffer from excessive fertility. Okay, all right. I had never heard that before. In 1976, in response to Indian people calling for a stop to coerced or unauthorized sterilizations, a study was done. The report showed an unusually high number of sterilizations among a small populace, citing about 3,500 sterilizations. Where did they occur? In Indian country. South Dakota, Arizona, New Mexico, and Oklahoma. The US Department of Health Services was responsible for paying about 90% of uh, those sterilizations. And they wonder why we're so resistant to Western doctors and Western medicine. I have a friend, she's now in her 60s, who lived in a remote part of Arizona off the reservation. She told, me, she told me a story about when she was a young girl, about 12. She was very sick and had to be taken to the hospital. Before she left, her parents had to make a decision about who would take her. Her father was mixed blood and he didn't look that Indian. So he went. Her mother stayed home. She found out later that they were trying to protect her from being unknowingly sterilized because she was an Indian. Today she laments about not having her mother by her side when she was in the hospital and feels so badly for her mother that she couldn't be with her little girl. And so what about the psychosis and the environment? Dakota Access Pipeline. Today we are facing another assault on our mother, the Dakota Access Pipeline, a pipeline embedded in the earth, cutting through North Dakota, stretching to Illinois, over a thousand miles of pipeline being built to carry fracked oil from the Bakken oil fields through several states at the cost of $3.7 billion. The pipeline was scheduled to go under the Missouri River next to the Standing Rock Reservation. And of course, this pipeline was moved from its original location, which was slated to cut through a nearly all white community. And when those complaints were heard, the pipeline was moved. I have heard lawyers talk about how the pipeline is now being done in sections to avoid ecological oversight and regulations. Smaller, smaller projects don't need the type of review that big, big projects do. These corporations are very clever. Anything that stands in their way of the almighty dollar is in danger. You have all seen the pictures of the snarling dogs and the pepper spray being used against peaceful water protectors and the militarization response uh, to the people. 
Water is important to us. Protection of the water is part of our sacred obligation to the mother. It is also that, that our families are, it is so important that our families are, are not trying to stop our kids, even though we know that they're gonna be in danger. They could be jailed, they could be killed. When my uh, niece, my cousin, and my nephew all went, they're all in their 20s in, in September. They went with a delegation of people. They were sent with prayers, good advice, a hopefully, hopefully good advice, and a truckload of donations. But that's how important it is to us. In this history, Standing Rock is everywhere. It's in Nebraska, home of the world's largest uranium mine. It's in California on the traditional territories of the Chumash where earlier this year 45,000 gallons of oil were leaked, affecting the land, water, and wildlife. It's in Hawaii, Montana, definitely Louisiana, South Carolina, Texas, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Utah, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Each of these states have had a significant oil spill in the last four years. I also wanted to mention the 120,000 gallons of oil that was leaked into the ocean off the Chumash traditional territories. And for us, it's personal. It's really personal. And I know that it is for everybody else too. <clears throat> In our creation stories, when the people came from the islands of origin and to the mainland when they migrated, Hutash and Kakunukmawa, uh, they built a rainbow bridge for us to cross. It was so long ago, it was before canoes. And some of the people were told not to look down, but some of them did. And the ones that did fell into the water. And when they fell into the water, Hutash said, Kakanumawa, save your people. They are good people. And then the drowning ones started to change in their body, and they became dolphins. So when they talk about those oil spills out there affecting the marine life, they're they're affecting our relatives. Not only that, but the swordfish threw a whale on top of the shore to feed the people during the famine. They're our relatives. There's no separation. For us, it's, uh, it's one of the worst things that we can think of. In Black Mesa, Arizona, where Peabody Energy sucked the groundwater out of the traditional homelands of the Diné and Hopi people, they bled the land for uh, 1.2 billion gallons of water a year from an aquifer of that land that the people needed until 2005 when it closed. The wake of that destruction of the land and to the people is still with us. First proposed in 1940s, Hopi traditional people opposed the assault on the mother, but President Truman ignored the people. Hopi traditionalists wrote letters to Presidents Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, all asking that the assault stop, but the destruction continued. And Peabody Energy still operates a very different kind of mine on the Navajo Reservation. Standing Rock is everywhere, all over the indigenous world. What about the tar sands in Canada or the largest copper pebble mine in Alaska? The assault on water has taken many forms. Water is big business. There are places in Africa where it's cheaper to buy a Coca-Cola than it is a bottle of water. 
Aquifers all over the world are being purchased by multinational corporations, depriving the people of clean water, building huge walls like fortresses around their companies. Former President Bush and his family bought 300,000 acres of land in Paraguay. Why there? Because it sits on top of one of the largest aquifers in the world. I think he knows something, do you? It's estimated that two-thirds of the world's population will be water stressed by 2025. And I think it might come a lot sooner than that. John Trudell said we must go beyond civil rights, we must go beyond human rights, and step into the reality of natural rights, because all of the natural world has a right to existence, and we are only a small part of it. There can be no trade-off. I think the wisdom of John's word is that if we can place natural rights first, the rights of Mother Earth, where every sacred element is respected, then it would be understood that all life has the right to exist. There's a place where human rights would already exist because natural rights would exist. So I want to talk about the law a little bit, and then I just want to tell you a little bit about myself. I was a teen mom on welfare when I, it became clear to me that I needed to get an education. After a landlord had allowed the Los Angeles Police Department to go into my small apartment without a warrant, based on false accusations. She threatened to take my baby away. I called every organization I could think of. Many wanted to help, some even showed up, but nobody had the education or the ability or the resources to help me. It was then that I knew. I had to get educated, and now I didn't think I could be a lawyer because it seemed too far away. I didn't even know anybody who had graduated from college. But I started the community college on welfare with no car, Walked back and forth to school. My mom, she gave me tremendous help, helped me with my young son while I was in class, even though she herself had went back to school and was getting an education after dropping out of high school as a teenager. I saw education as a tool, it was something. My mom said that no one could ever take away from me. Initially, I didn't go to college to save the world or to do anything profound. I just wanted to save my son. It was the only thing I could think of that could bring us out of poverty. I wanted to give him a chance. This was my survival time. Living through poverty, the welfare system, domestic violence, the days of commodity cheese and commodity peanut butter. They used to fascinate me with the expiration dates of 20 years into the future. <laughs> <laughs> These were the days of Indian cars, gallons of jugs of water in my back seat, ready to cure a leaky radiator. The days of running out of gas on the freeway and digging for change in the seat cushions just so I could get home. I left welfare behind after college, and one year later I was in law school. My grandparents, very humble, authentic people who lived close to the earth, but also had hard lives. My grandmother, she was born in Arizona in 1917, a non-citizen, because citizenship didn't come to the Indian people until the 1920s. My grandfather, a Shumash man, was placed into a Catholic orphanage when he was four years old after the mother, his mother had left his family and his father had broke his, broke his arm and couldn't work. And yes, there was abuses in those orphanages, as in many of the Catholic residential and boarding schools. 
My parents and grandparents helped me pay for my law books. My aunt got a church to donate a car after I was assaulted one night coming home from a late mandatory class. And uh, I got through law school though with grants, loans, and a loving support of extended family. During my first trial, it involved real estate. The opposing lawyer lied to me and misdirected me. He chatted with the judge about golf and some vacation spot while we were in the pretrial conference. I couldn't engage in that conversation. I had no information about these things. I was 27 years old. What shame I felt when my grandmother asked me, how's the lot business going? And I said, Grandma, I think I made a mistake. People lied to you. I wasn't, I wasn't used to that, uh, that kind of life. I wasn't used to being lied to. And after so many in my family had helped me and the sacrifices that had been made for me to get through school, I was worried. I realized that this arena was gonna be very different from anything I, had, I was used to. The first trial showed me that this profession that I had looked up to was another hostile place. I prayed for the truth in that case. I, che I checked the facts and double checked whatever the attorney told me. In the end, the woman I represented won her case and I stepped into the reality of what practicing law was going to mean. My innocence about the law had been ruptured. My legal training though has been used in many different ways over the years. The transition from survival to now has been eye-opening. The law has been used as a tool to protect sacred sites in defense of children under the Indian Child Welfare Act and assisting native people in their everyday problems that they have in their urban life. We have learned much from being involved in this system. The laws and being subjected to the courts of the conqueror and the genocidal policies that made these made this possible in the court system. Harsh lessons in the defense of our land, water, and sacred sites. Thank you. Make no mistake, I know exactly where I'm at when I go to work. I just pray that my worldview and my love can transform that hostile place just a little bit for the people that come in front of me. In 2016, a Humboldt, uh, at Humboldt State University, we talked about using the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. I've heard so many lawyers talk about the Declaration as if it doesn't matter. And these are usually lawyers that are very used to practicing federal Indian law. But they speak about it as if it has no impact, no consequence. But I told the audience, we bring the power to that document. If the first court doesn't hear you, try again. Knock on those courtroom doors until you find somebody who can hear you. It won't matter to them if it doesn't matter to us. I think lawyers are gonna to have to step it up a notch. We need to get licensed in places that are vulnerable, like the Dakotas. I, we need to be prepared for the conflicts that will surely come. I have heard that there are plenty of lawyers dealing with the environmental issues, but there's a severe shortage of lawyers to help those who've been criminally prosecuted. The water protectors and the land defenders, they need you. You have all something valuable to contribute. I wanna share uh, these few words with you from John Trudell. 
they're going to become more brutal. They're going to become more repressive because it's a matter of dollars and their illusionary concepts of power. We have to reestablish our identity. We have to understand who we are and where we fit into the natural order of the world because our oppressor deals in illusions. They tell us that it is power, but it is not power. They may have all the guns and all, they may have all the laws and the racist laws and judges, and they may have control of all the money, but that is not power. These are imitations of power, and they are only power because in our minds we allow them to be. We are power. We are the natural part of creation. We are put here on the sacred mother earth to serve a purpose. And somewhere in the history of people, we're forgetting what that purpose is. The purpose is to honor the earth. The purpose is to protect the earth. The purpose is to live in balance with the earth. The earth is our mother. John Trudell's words ring really true for me. My grandfather, who was born in 1897, died in 1991. And when we drive back to our traditional homelands with the most, some of the most expensive real estate in the whole country, Santa Barbara area, he'd drive by these mansions and these big homes and he'd wave them away and they think they own this. And he'd, he'd giggle. <laughs> they think they own this. <laughs> you know, the late Billy Frank, he visited our islands, which we quote, don't own. I don't care, we're always gonna be, they're always gonna be our islands. Uh, he went to visit there, there and um, he told us a story about cedar trees. Where canoe people, Billy Frank's people, the late Billy Frank, famous activist and um, defender of fishing rights, good man, he said, you know, we're planting cedar trees for canoes for the future. But the only thing is, it takes a thousand years for the cedar to grow that big. But I wondered, so he's planning, they're planting the trees for the future. Here's what I think. Will the US government be here in a thousand years? Will the Canadian government be here in a thousand years? The Australian government, the New Zealand government, will they be here in a thousand years? The oldest remains in this country were found on the islands of our origin for the Shumash people. 13,000 years. I think, I don't think they will, but whether or not the governments are here, I know that we'll be here. We're gonna remember. And that was Deborah Sanchez from the Chumash and Autumn Nations speaking on surviving the system from survival mode to renewal. She was the keynote speaker at this year's World Indigenous Law Conference held within the traditional territories of the Hachiman and Tongva Nations. In the next segment of tonight's show, we're going to hear a clip from longtime Indigenous community activist, artist, poet, orator, John Trudell on The Earth Was the Mother. So life was about responsibility. And the earth was the mother. And at some point in the evolution of the human beings, another perception of reality appeared. And this perception of reality, it took the spirit away from the animals and all of the other things and it started 
changing spirit into human form, the gods and the goddesses. So at some point in the evolution, see, it started to take the way the people prayed. But it has to do with iron and bronze and all these things being, being starting to become mined. So it's like it kind of evolved in this kind of a way. It's like, see, in a way, religion emerged, in it, but it was like a mining tool for the technologic reality that was manifesting itself through industrialization. But it became almost like a tool, see, because you got to go to the center of where the human being is, because all human beings want to know where we come from and where we're going, what's our purpose. So you've got to go there if you're going to mess with them. You have to go there to the very beginnings. The beginnings and the heart of the spiritual realities. So, the God thing evolved, the religious thing, that changed the creation story from being a creation story to where there was a new story. And this new story was that there was a male dominator God removed from the earth who owned everything because he made it. <laughs> so he owned it. All right. Now, at this point in our common collective genetic ancestral memory, every one of our relations back in that time rejected this because life worked for them. Because the earth was the mother and the sky was the father. It's like the great spirit. Spirits, everything, it worked for them. They maintained a balance. They knew who they were. They knew what their purpose was. They knew their relationship to power. They knew everything about their lives. So it worked for them. But they were forced to accept this other perceptional reality through violence and terror and aggression. Same thing happened to the Indians here by the descendants of the tribes of Europe, happened to the tribes of Europe and their descendants. That's why they behaved the way they did when they got here. And this is where I think sexism comes from. I think it comes from our relationship to the earth. See, I think sexism was one of the mining tools because when you're going to convince all of the human beings in whatever tribes that they're in, as you come into contact with them, you had to turn them against the earth to promote this male god thing to alter the perceptional reality. So this is where sexism came. It came as a way because, see, as long as the people considered themselves to be the children of the earth and a part of the earth, they would not plunder the earth. They would not aid and abet or accept the plundering of the earth because the earth is their mother. See, so that's why sexism came in as a way because in order to attack the earth amongst the human beings they came into contact with, they had to attack their perceptional reality about the woman in relationship to the earth and life. So sexism, so it, became, it was like a mining tool to help turn us against the earth and make the earth available for plunder. So in order to have all this experience get dumped down in our ancestral past because it was all like what I'm saying is this mining process. As the technology grew, the ways and methods of mining remain the same. And it's almost like a predatory behavior. They never, the behavior pattern never really changes itself. What the behavior pattern does is it just outlasts the generations. So after five generations are gone, the behavior pattern can be as predatory as it ever was, like medieval civil, uh, Europe. The behavior pattern can be as aggressive as it ever was because after five generations, who's going to remember what was there? The terminology changes, the technology changes. So it's like there's this thing that just kind of been to me, right? That's a part of this civilization that just, it just kind of re-manifests itself, but the continual thing is it eats our spirit to me. It converts, feeds off of us in some kind of a way.
See, so this is why it's important to separate everybody from any ancestral understandings and teachings because, see, they don't want anybody to know this. So everybody thinks they got hope. And the thing continues to spread because you women, look at what the women's suffrage was in, in the 1800s. So now you have the right to vote and you made certain little gains, but see, it's still the same war. And the concessions are given very slowly. And it's, it's this way with labor, it's this way with all of the things. But anyway, it's behavior pattern basically remains the same. And it's means of conducting its behavior pattern. That's what really changes. And, and the generation of people that it gets conducted on, this changes. But in order for all this stuff to happen, they have to neutralize our intelligence. They have to create a confusion in our own perceptional reality. So somewhere in each and every one of us, there's a collective genetic memory that goes way back to the beginning of the original dream, the beginning of our stories. And our relationship to power in reality is connected to us understanding that that is there. But we're in a technologic perception of reality that does not want us to understand that. The moment of silence is over. And that was John Trudell on The Earth Was the Mother off the DNA Descendant Now Ancestors album. And that concludes our show for tonight here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Deborah Sanchez. A special thank you to our musical guest for the hour, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Parafe, and Jonathan Ward. John Trudell, and the band Blackfire. A special thank you to Matt Perez. American Indian Airwaves County Radio is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California, and County Radio in Goleta, California. For Marcus Lopez, Corey Dubin, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And for the innocent you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains In a rhythm of resistance We still fight for our lives In this war that never against our fears Try not to become what we've endured Wearing our souls on the thread The moment of silence is over